Hi, friends. Um, I really have been wrestling with why you brought me over, to be honest. Because, um, um, I mean, I've been just so super impressed with who you are, and I have really wondered why on earth you would bring someone like me over. Um, it's genuine, too. So it's been, um, it's just been so good hearing all your stories and hearing who you are. And um, I think if I had to pull things together in terms of my little contribution, um, I think on, what was it? Friday, seems a long time ago now, but um, I think there what I was trying to do on Friday for those who weren't there was that ego often gets in the way actually of being salt and light. And so what we did on Friday afternoon is that in a very fun sort of way we looked at various excessive ego types and what to do with those. So that was really Friday. What I was trying to do, I didn't feel as though I did a particularly good job yesterday, um, Saturday morning, was um, if Friday afternoon was bringing into the light our ego types, um, then yesterday morning it was how to share that light, you know, especially the light of Christ with other people and what what I've learned on that journey. And so that was yesterday morning. And then I wrestled with what do I do this morning? And so I've, I've chosen to stick with the theme of light and go to a particular passage that very few people would turn to at this juncture. So if you have your Bibles, do you have Bibles? Um, you might like to come uh, with me to Luke. Um, 16. And I just want to um, reflect on something that maybe the Lord has placed on my heart. Okay? This morning for seeds and for cornerstone. So I hadn't planned to do this. So we'll see how it goes. I always. You know, hey, you can't get too precious about all of this stuff. So um, Luke 16, and here is the story. And let me read. Uh, verse 1, Jesus told his disciples. Now this is arguably, probably, the most complicated, complex parable that Jesus ever told. And some people would like to cut it out with a razor blade. So here it goes. Jesus told, this, this, told his disciples, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. You know what's coming, eh? You know this parable. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors and he asked the first, 
How much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. And the manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it only 400. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. And he told him, look, take your bill and make it only 800. And the master commended <laughs> the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. And here it goes. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. What the heck do you make of that parable? Tell the person next to you, go to it. Have you ever made sense of that parable? Oh? Just really? Have you ever struggled with that parable? Because, you know, when you set that parable up, people invariably, what they do is they either see Robin Hood or they see a rogue. In other words, they see the guy who took wealth from the owner and redistributed the wealth. So they kind of see, oh, there is an earlier form of Robin Hood. Or they see, no, he was ripping his master off. He was, do you know what I mean? And so they see a rogue. And so when people look at this kind of passage, they think, well, which one is he? Is he a Robin Hood or is he a rogue? Let's do a vote. All those, all those here who think he's kind of like a Robin Hood figure, hands up. Hands up. All those of you think he's a bit of a rogue? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> okay. I actually think that the point of the passage is something else. In other words, it's not even about being a Robin Hood or a rogue. Because what is actually commended in this passage is his shrewdness. And what Jesus, I think, is suggesting to the people of the light is that what they have to add to their light is savviness, is cleverness, is shrewdness. Actually, if you do a bit of Greek on the word shrewd, it carries the idea of you being a savvy personal decision maker. In other words, here was this guy who was in a very difficult, awkward situation and what he did was he expressed himself as shrewd, as cunning, as savvy, as a bit of a schemer actually, as a personal decision maker. Now, did you get that point? I think that's what's being commended here. Now, when I think of scripture, and I think of someone who was really cleverly shrewd. I think of a woman in the Older Testament. So I would like to have a look at her. And if you came to my home, now Lindy's been to a home that we had before, the place that we're in now, and she would have noticed, possibly, I don't know, that we, in my study I have photos of people, pin-up boys and pin-up girls. So I have Mother Teresa, I have Rosa Parks, I have Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I have, you know, I have Henry Nouwen, 
All of these are all our pin-up people, aren't they? Well, that went down. Well, um, so, if I could get a photo of this person that I'm about to draw your attention to, I could. If I could, I would frame it and put it up on my wall. She is one of my pin-up girls. And who is she? Come with me to Genesis chapter 27. Where's my Bible? There. Genesis 27. Genesis 27. Here she is. You know the story quite well, but let me read. Genesis 27 verse 1, and it says this, Now when Isaac was old and his eyes were so weak, that he could no longer see. He called for Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, here I am, he answered. And Isaac said, Now I'm now an old man. I don't know the day of my death. Now then get your weapons, your quiver and bow, and go out to the open country and hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me to eat so that I may give you my blessing before I die. Now Rebecca... Rebecca. Now Rebecca was listening. <laughs> I won't say anything more. Now Rebecca was listening as Isaac spoke to his son Esau. And when Esau left for the open country to hunt game and bring it back, Rebecca said to her son Jacob, Look, I overheard your father say to your brother Esau, Bring me some game and prepare me some tasty food to eat so that I may give you my blessing in the presence of the Lord before I die. Now, my son, listen carefully and do what I tell you. Go out to the flock and bring me two choice young goats so I can prepare some tasty food for your father just the way he likes it. Then take it to your father to eat so that he may give you his blessing before he dies. So Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, but my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I'm a man with smooth skin. I love the Bible, eh? It's so good. <laughs> what if my father touches me? I would appear to be tricking him and would bring down a curse on myself rather than a blessing. And his mother said to him, my son, let the curse fall on me. Just do what I say. Go and get them for me. So he went and got them and brought them to his mother and she prepared some tasty food and just the way his father liked it. And then Rebekah took the best clothes of Esau, his older son, which he had in the house, and she put them on her younger son Jacob. She also covered his hands and the smooth part of his neck with goat skins. Then she handed to her son Jacob the tasty food and the bread she had made. And he went to his father and said, My father, yes, my son, he answered, who is it? And Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn, when in fact he wasn't. I have done as you have told me. Please sit and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. And Isaac asked his son, How did you find it so quickly, my son? <laughs> and the Lord your God gave me success, he replied. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Don't you just love it? Then Isaac said to Jacob, Come near so I can touch you, my son, to know whether you really are my son, Esau, or not. And when Jacob went close to his father, Isaac, who touched him and said, The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him, for his hands were hairy, like those of his brothers Esau, so he blessed him. 
Are you really my son? Esau he asked. I am, he replied. Then he said, my son, bring me some of your game to eat so that I may give you my blessing. And Jacob brought it to him and he ate and brought some wine and he drank. And then his father Isaac said to him, come here, my son, and kiss me. So he went to him and kissed him and Isaac caught the smell of his clothes and he blessed him. What do you think of Rebecca? Tell the person next to you. Okay, guys, I mean, let's be, let's um, just do a bit of a survey again. Um, when it comes to Rebecca, how has she traditionally been seen? Has she been demeaned, belittled, demonised, seen as a bit of a rogue? Or the heroine in the story? Traditionally, how has she been cast? Oh, cried Let's do a show of hands. How many, traditionally, by most, has she been seen a bit as a, a rogue or a hero? Those who think a bit of a rogue, hands up. Yeah, 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 you're right. Yeah, okay. Now that's traditionally, I'm not saying that's the way it is. I actually have a contrary view. Who also has the contrary view? Yeah, thank you. You just wait now. <laughs> Let me get to my point. So, how do we see this? this is, I'm going to paraphrase it here. It goes like this. So Rebecca gave birth to twins. Okay, birth to twins. And Esau and Jacob. Okay? Now I'm a twin actually. I have a twin sister. So... <laughs> I like that. So gave birth to twins and then um, um, and I don't know how this happens, but one came out, the two boys, one came out as a hairy man or a hairy boy, hairy baby, arguably, and and the other one came out as smooth skinned. So they grow up, they through their teenage years get into that young adult phase, and then Rebecca, she overhears her inept husband. And Isaac is inept. And I'll explain that soon. And she overhears her inept husband saying to Esau, I will give you the blessing. And so then she puts play into plan, or plan into play, and I a scheme, okay? And the scheme was that she knew that her, her youngest was a little bit like, you know, a metrosexual, you know, um, smooth skin, arguably did wax, I don't know, but, um, uh, but smooth skin. And the eldest was, I don't know, from Bendigo, you know? Um, you know real ochre, you know, a hairy, bit like Dave here, I don't know. And, yeah, that's right. And so what, what happens in the story is that she puts into play this plan that, you know, to kind of camouflage the kind of skin that he has so that he might get the blessing. I think she's brilliant. Why do I think she's brilliant? Any ideas? Yes, we do. 
But why is she brilliant? I think she did see that. I think she saw that arguably he was going to, that he had something about a sense of God that he could pass on. So that's what you were saying to, you know, future generations in Israel. I, I do sense she saw that, but there was something else. What do you think it is? You see, when she was giving birth to the twins, she, at the time of birth, which is amazing when you think about it, women, but at the time of giving birth, she had an epiphany. She had a vision, a dream. She heard a whisper. She had an epiphany. And in the epiphany, she heard God say to her that the eldest will serve the youngest. And so many years later, when Isaac said that he was going to pass on the blessing to the eldest, Rebecca, she knew that he was acting contrary to the epiphany that had been given. And she was the one who was acting according to the word of God to them. So in that situation, in that difficult situation, she acted shrewdly. Are you with me? In other words, in that situation, oh, I love her. You get this. Oh, I'd marry her if I could. But <laughs> in that situation, you see, what she did actually was that she betrayed her, her husband. She betrayed her eldest. She betrayed her generation, because you didn't do that in that day. She betrayed the culture in which she lived. She went against the accepted notions of the day. She did something that was considered incredibly radical for the era in which she lived. Don't you love her? Is that right? So I would have her as a heroine. And I asked the Lord to give me a word for seeds and for Cornerstone and for you guys. And so something began to stir in me on the Friday and I received a, an epiphany a picture, as I was still waiting for my hosts to wake up <laughs> this morning. <laughs> and I'm going to share that with you soon, because I do sense I have just but one word. I'm a cerebrally challenged person. I can only handle one thought in any given talk. So, um, so I have one thought, and it goes like this. You see, I believe 
The challenge before all of us in this room is to add shrewdness and cunning and daring initiative. to our light and to have the courage to be rogues. What I mean by that is, I think you're in a season where you have to rethink what it is you have to do that is incredibly unusual and unconventional. Did you get that? Because you see, there are two types of ethics there is what is called the ethics of creativity and the ethics of conventionality. And as I've sat with you, and you're going to have to forgive me because I don't pull my punches, but as I've sat with you, I have just wondered, and I raise it as a question, not as a statement, I have just wondered whether you have where the conventionality has now actually got a stranglehold on you. In other words, you know how it is that when we start out, we start out incredibly creative. But that very creativity actually in time turns into, in terms of our groups, I'm not talking in terms of reference to other groups. I'm just talking about our groups. That our very creativity in our early phases actually morphs into conventionality. And I just wonder where the seeds, and I raise it as a question, where the seeds in Cornerstone actually, I mean, in terms of other groups, yes, you are unusual. Yes, you are unconventional. But in terms of reference to yourselves, are you going round in circles? Because the picture that I got as I was waiting this morning and I was just talking to Jesus was just this wheel that was going round and round and round and round. And I wondered where the seeds in Cornerstone are faithfully going round and round and round and is it time to get off the circle and as groups in and of yourselves forgetting about the other groups is it time now for you to launch out on new paths of unusualness you know Dietrich Bonhoeffer I did my masters in Dietrich and um and Dietrich was once asked, they said, if you had one word, Dietrich, to sum up the Christian, what would that one word be? And he said, unusual. Do you like that? Unusual. So, in reference to other groups, you are unconventional. But Jesus said, don't compare and contrast yourself with other groups. What Jesus asks us to do is look at our own groups. And have we become, we're just going round the circle. Round the circle. It, have you reached a time 
where you need to express yourselves afresh as those that are cunning, clever, savvy, shrewd, and you be the decision makers and not just wait on God. Is he waiting on you to actually express yourselves in new, unusual and unconventional ways? That's what I felt to ask. Now before I give you some examples of this, turn to the person next to you and say, that's the last time we're going to invite that guy here. I mean, what did you think? Go to it. What did you think of that? <laughs> yeah, they're trying to go wrong. And, and I, I have it on my heart to say that because you know when, you, when you're a public communicator, you invariably get people coming up to you time and time again and saying, oh look, I'm really wanting to know what God's will is for my life. Do you know what I mean? And you get that time and time again. And what is behind that question that people are asking is that they, they do somehow think that God has this blueprint for their lives. It's my personal view that he doesn't. My personal view is that, that we have this, this connection with Jesus Christ and, and then he says, now you have to work out what's been worked in you and you've got to do it with a bit of fear and trembling. And who knows what's going to happen? But you have your part to play in the puzzle. And don't just express yourself as a waiter, waiting on the blueprint to fall from the heavens. Express yourself as a decision maker. I empower you. I have a higher view of the human person. You have say-so. You have a part to play in what the future looks like. And sometimes God steps back and thinks, wow, I wonder what they come up with next. And he loves it. Did you get that? So in terms of what the unusualness and unconventionality might look like, you have to do that hard work. He will not do it for you. It is not in his job description to do everything for you. It's, you know this, eh? That's right, eh? I mean... We could tell stories at this point. I mean, you know Tim Winton? He's your, arguably, I mean there's Peter Carey, but Tim Winton is arguably one of your best fiction writers, is that right? And you probably know the story, but he was being interviewed by someone called Denton. Is that right? Yeah. And, um, and have you heard the story? And, and, and like Tim is a follower of Jesus. And Denton, who knew this, Asked Tim Winton, you know, why, how did that happen? Do you know the story? Would you like to hear it? Of course you would. Um, so the story basically goes like this. 
um, that when Tim was five, okay, when he was five, um, that's all right. It was making as much sense as I am. So, um, so when Tim was five, um, his father was involved in a horrendous motorbike accident and his father, you've heard this Dave, and his father was a policeman. And, and so the father went into hospital, was in there for a long time, and then he got to a certain condition, position where he could be returned home. And Tim would never forgets when his father came in. At least he thought it was his father. I mean, it was a version of his father. It didn't really look like the father that he used to have. And his father was this big, hulking man. Okay, and when his, you know, Tim's mother, the father, you know, um, the wife of the husband, you know, when um, she looked at her man coming through the door, she thought, oh my goodness. And then she thought, well, how am I going to bathe this man? So this was decades ago. And, um, and then there was a knock at the door. Have you heard this? And there was a knock at the door and she goes to open the door and Tim's sort of in the background and there's a guy called Len, you know, good old Len. And, um, and so Len says, g'day, you know, and um, I'm trying to get that accent going, a uh, bit rural, I admit. Uh, so Len says, g'day, and she says, what are you here for? And Len says, well, you know, I heard that uh, your old man's been in an accident you know, and all this kind of stuff. So um, he says, is there anything you'd like me to do? I got that right. And, uh, and then she said, well, actually there is. He's too big for me to bathe. And so Lynn said, well, you know, she'll be right, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and so every day <laughs> I practiced in front of the mirror. <laughs> <laughs> Every day he came in, Len, and picked up this hulking man and bathed him. And Tim saw something highly unusual. And for that era, it was unconventional. It's no longer unconventional. Us doing stuff for neighbours like that is no longer really that and for you guys, it's not, it's not unusual anymore. It's kind of part of your convention. But way back then, that was unconventional. I'm just saying, you have to find a new pathway towards unusualness and unconventionality as groups. I heard of this old lady. Oh, brilliant. But she was a shut-in old lady. And, you know, she had gnarled, twisted fingers. And, and she just couldn't get out of her home and so forth and so on. So she was a shut-in. She was about 90 or so on. Do you know what she did? True story. She wrote to Amnesty International. And she said to Amnesty International, is there anything I can do? So Amnesty International wrote back to her and said, yes, we, will, we want to put you in charge of, of helping to set free a political prisoner in Indonesia. 
So she took that on board. This now became her mission in life. As this twisted, gnarled, you know, shut-in old lady to set free a political prisoner in Indonesia. So she started writing screeds of letters, hundreds of letters. And then many years later, she got a letter back. And she wrote to parliamentarians, she wrote to the jailer, she wrote to anybody she could. Have you heard this? And then she got a letter back. And in this letter, it was from the political prisoner. And he said, my dear woman, I just so thank you for picking up my story and writing all of those letters. And then he went on to say, my file is one inch thick and it's just full of letters from you. The file got so big, they just decided to set me free. <laughs> and then he said, may it be that every political prisoner's file becomes one inch thick. Now, at that time, when she did that, as a 90-year-old, that was unusual. That was unconventional. It's not now. That kind of stuff, in our circles, it's the new whack. <laughs> I dress for my talks. It's the new black. Do you know what I mean? It's no longer unusual. It's conventional. You know, I, um, another story could go like this. I'll never forget a woman came, she rang me up and she said, oh, Mick, can we have a coffee? And I said, fine got together and she said, oh, she said, by the way, I'm a Christian and I'm a lesbian. So um, I said to her, because you know when you do this light stuff, and you know this, so you know this, you know when you do this evangelism stuff, you know we can evangelize with words, and we've talked about that, and we can evangelize with deeds, and we've talked about that too. And I just told you about Len. Okay? But there's another way in which we can evangelise as well. And so when this woman said to me, and I wasn't trying to evangelise her, but I'm making a point here. When she said that she was a Christian and a lesbian, I said to her, I would just love to hear your story. So for the next hour and a half, she told me her story. And then it got to the end of the hour and a half and I said, I have to go. I'm due somewhere else. And she said to me, you mean you're not going to say anything? And I said, no, I've got to go. I genuinely had to go. So, and she was so impressed by this that she said, oh, could we have another coffee? You know, so we agreed to have another coffee about a week later. And in between time, like I said yesterday morning, I got my cards out and my files out on the very complex issue of homosexuality and lesbianism. Very complex issue. And I read all my material that I had been accruing over the years so that I could be at my cerebral best not just my compassionate best, but my cerebral best with her. 
So in our, uh, the next week we got together, and as I said yesterday morning, I just asked knowing questions. And she knew I was knowingly knowing and asking knowing questions. So, but I didn't say anything. I just asked questions. So she asked to have another coffee. Did, are you getting this? See, for her, I mean, we can evangelize with words, we can evangelize people with deeds, but sometimes we can evangelize with silence. And we can do our best work with people with silence. Do you know they did a survey here in Australia? And they asked non-Christians here in Australia, why aren't you becoming Christians? Have you heard the results of this? And so they did the survey here in Australia, and when they were analysing all the data, it came out in the data that there were things called blocker issues in Australia, blocker issues, what blocks people from becoming Christians. The three blocker issues are, number one, homosexuality. What is perceived to be the church's stance on homosexuality. Number two, um, hell. What is perceived to be the church's position on hell. That's a blocker issue. 29% of the survey said that they wouldn't become Christians because of the issue of hell. 25% said they wouldn't become Christians because of the issue of homosexuality. 55% of the survey said they wouldn't become Christians because of the scandals that occur in the church. And these are blocker issues. So what I have learned in terms of evangelism when I'm with people is to sometimes do the unusual and the unconventional and to greet people with silence, especially in and around the blocker issues. Are you with me? So with that particular woman, by the way, and I'm nearly done, with that particular woman, I mean, there was some weeks later and I got a phone call. And it was from a non-Christian gay person. And this person said, Mick, can we have coffee? So I had a coffee with the non-Christian gay person. That same week, there was another phone call. Mick, from someone differently, can we have a coffee? And it was from another gay person. Then that same week, there was a third person, independent of the other two. Could they have a coffee with me? And by the time I got to the third person, I said to the third person, you're the third person this week. What's going on? It didn't stop there. There was a fourth person. And so I said to the fourth person, you're the fourth person from the gay community that is asked to have a talk to me, a pastor. And you've all been non-Christians. And the fourth person said, haven't you heard? And I said, heard what? And they said, oh, the word's getting around town. I said, what do you mean? And they said, oh, you're the go-to guy. You're the go-to person. At last, there is a Christian in town who is at their compassionate best, their relational best, and their cerebral best in and around the complex issue of homosexuality. In other words, for them, I was unconventional and unusual. But see, you guys know all that stuff. You're there already. So I had this picture this morning. It was an actual picture of this wheel going round and round 
and round. And you're going round, same old, same old, same old. All good. But that original charism that you had of doing the unusual and the unconventional, I think you have to launch out again and discover what that is. And you have to do that work. It's not always God's work, it's your work. And I don't know what it will look like. But it's time to do the unusual again and the unconventional. In reference to your groups, not in reference to those groups. Did you get that? That's what I felt to say.